What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Boy, do we have a pile of stuff to get through today. First here, I want to get into how Donald Trump and the Taliban, and frankly, the entire Republican Party are all choosing basically to go down the same authoritarian path. What could possibly go wrong? We'll get to that in a moment. Also, why are so many Republicans bent out of shape about school masks? You know, that's, that's uh, you're infringing freedom if you have to wear a mask. But they're out there selling bulletproof backpacks so the kids are safe from school shootings. That's not an infringement on their freedom. Jake Johnson is going to drop by uh, talking about what's going on in Haiti. And <laughs> they don't need another president chosen in secret. This is, I mean, there are, it, Haiti is like disaster upon disaster. We'll get to that for our program today. So that's like in a nutshell what we're going to get into today. I want to start out with this question. Is there an analogy, a meaningful analogy, between the, Repub- the modern Republican worldview and the Taliban worldview? And I'm not, and I'm not talking, you know, generically about Republicans. Uh, you know, I start out my op-ed today over at Harbinger Report talking about how yesterday Louise and I were watching CNN, and there was an ad from this uh, Wall Street-funded uh, group, No Labels, they are the ones who put together the Problem Solvers Caucus in Washington, D.C., in Congress. Talking about the wonders of Kurt Schrader, who is a congressman who represents South Portland and areas south of there. He's a Democrat. And, but he's one of the nine Democrats who threatened to blow up the $3.5 trillion piece of legislation, you know, the infrastructure bill. And now Kirsten Sinema has said she's also a member of this you know, take money from Wall Street and call yourself a problem solver group, saying that she's not going to vote for it either. These, these people like Schrader and Cinema, they basically occupy a long and reasonable place in American politics. They are what we used to call Republicans. But nowadays, uh, and, and uh, you know, along with Schrader's eight buddies in the, in the House of Representatives and Cinema and Joe Manchin and apparently Chris Coons and, and uh, Carper and maybe a few others, I don't know, maybe with Dianne Feinstein, we'll see. But, you know, we used to call these folks Republicans and, you know, they were kind of the loyal opposition. They sometimes had a reason or excuse or something that sounded at least rational. That is not what is going on today. Today's Republicans are something that uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Richard Nixon would not recognize. As my colleague Dean Obadala lays out, he pointed it out on an MSNBC commentary, neither the Taliban nor today's Republicans think that women should have basically rights in society. Uh, Today's Republicans refuse to vote for the equal rights amendment. This has been going on since the 1950s. That simply says there shall be no discrimination based on on sex, on gender. They are refusing to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act. They are trying to put women in prison merely for the act of seeking an abortion when raped. 228 Republicans 
in the U.S. House of Representatives signed a brief before the United States Supreme Court asking them to overturn Roe v. Wade, saying that they were trying to protect women from dangerous abortions while upholding the integrity of the medical profession. Republicans, like the Taliban, don't believe that women should be in the workplace, and so they work to actively discourage them uh, by refusing to vote for legislation, ensuring that they get the same pay as men. But that's just the beginning. I mean, while the Democratic Party and the Republican Party pre-2000 still believe in free and fair elections, the Taliban ridicules the idea of, of democracy, and when, decision, and when elections are held, they do everything they can to intimidate voters, rig the outcome, even threaten politicians with assault or death. You know, the way that the Trump supporters planned to kidnap and hold a, for trial and then assassinate, execute Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Or like Republicans stormed the U.S. Capitol trying to assassinate Vice President Mike Pence and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and disrupt the election of 2020. This is Taliban behavior. Neither the Taliban nor the Republican Party believe in democracy. I mean, look at Wisconsin, North Carolina, Michigan, Pennsylvania, states where statewide a majority of voters vote for Democrats. And yet in North Carolina, for example, after the 2016 election, even though the election in terms of who voted for which party for Congress was about 50-50, they sent 10 Republicans to the House of Representatives and three Democrats, even though it was 50-50. Democracy? Ha! Say Republicans. Ha! Say the Taliban. It's kind of the same thing. The Taliban say that secular government is a joke. Government has to be based on the word of God. So does the Republican Party. The Taliban are encouraging religious leaders in democratic countries in the Middle East to break the law, to seize power. The Republican Party is openly encouraging religious leaders in the United States to break the law. In this case, the so-called Johnson Amendment, our tax laws, to preach politics in the pulpit, to seize political power. Republicans, like the Taliban, also cite Bronze Age religious doctrine in their opposition to rights for LGBTQ folks and in support of state-conducted killings like the Taliban does. The Taliban believes the political power should run from the top down, ignoring the will of the people. Here in America, you've, you've, I mean, you know, we, we have cliches that identify this. Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Yeah, like the Taliban. The Taliban are intolerant of people of different races or religions, just like, just like Republicans. Donald Trump, the cornerstone of his candidacy in 2016 was you know, brown-skinned refugees are going to murder and rape your white women. Racism is the animating force behind the so-called Republican militias. And what do we see in the U.S. House of Representatives? The number two Republican, Steve Scalise from Louisiana, as is David Duke, described himself, David Duke, the, the, the grand wizard of the Klan, uh, described himself, Steve Scalise described himself as David Duke without the baggage. And he speaks before white supremacist groups and he refuses to condemn anti-Semitism. The Taliban are also quite open in their belief, in their assertion that violence is a useful, meaningful, legitimate political tool. Just like the Republicans who are planning a rally next month in September at the Capitol in support of those patriots who stormed the Capitol, killed five people, and uh, tried to assassinate Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. As one Trump Taliban supporter uh, told CNN over the weekend, quote, there's millions of guns here. He's talking about the United States. You know, it took 11 days for them to take over Afghanistan. Wonder how many days, just asking for a friend, how many days it would take the patriots to take over this country? Think about it. Right. The Taliban fetishize guns and other weapons. The bigger, the more powerful, the better. Just like, you know, men suffering from sexual insecurity or, you know, misogyny, the hatred of women. Republicans do the same. They use guns and shooting targets as part of their, as part of their political ads and as giveaways and fundraisers. 
And they love to intimidate people, Republicans driving around in pickup trucks with giant flags and lots and lots of weapons, just like the Taliban. Taliban hate public schools just like Republicans do. In fact, Republicans so despise free public education that they work overtime to stop funding of colleges and destroy public K through 12 schools. Most recently, you had, uh, you know, the actually the most recent strategy to destroy our public schools is to force teachers in public schools, not private schools, but force teachers in public schools to expose themselves to the COVID virus by letting the children of people who watch Fox News all day come into the schools without masks on. And before that, Betsy DeVos would let a full-scale frontal attack on public schools. The Taliban hate gender minorities, LGBTQ folks. Republicans encourage gay hating and assaults on, on LGBTQ folks, you know, with their bathroom bills and laws forbidding gay and lesbian couples from adopting children. Ronald Reagan, for eight years of his presidency, refused to even say the word AIDS at the height of all those deaths. The Taliban looked to wealthy patrons like Saudi Arabia and the UAE to fund them. The Republicans looked to wealthy right-wing billionaires. I mean, what is the difference between the Taliban and the Republican Party? Am I missing something here? I mean, Trump is an accused serial rapist, a thief, a bully, and an oligarch who openly despises democratic institutions, just like the Taliban. Oh, and, and I, should have, I should have mentioned that the Taliban are anti-science. You know, they're intolerant of other religions. Remember them blowing up those uh, statues, those Hindu statues? Oh, my God, we can't have Hinduism. And the Republicans are intolerant of other religions and they're intolerant of science. I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. And I, you know, I, and I think it's pretty straightforward stuff. Trump's reasoning, I mean, you know, at Trump's super spreader event in Alabama, Trump came right out and praised the Taliban. Came right out and said it. He said, they're great negotiators. They are tough fighters. You know, he cut the deal for us to pull out of Afghanistan with the Taliban directly and cut the, the Afghan government, the government that we spent 20 years, 2,000 American lives plus, over 20,000 American casualties, he cut that government out of the negotiations. Said, sorry, you can't have anything to do with these negotiations. We're not going to include you in these negotiations. Am I missing something here? I mean, it, it, it seems to me that the difference between the Taliban and Trump is really just a difference of haircuts. And not just Trump, the, the Republican Party. That the Republican Party know how to put on a suit and behave like they are civilized and, and, and all that kind of thing. And the Taliban, you know, they, they wear big bushy beards and let their hair go a little wild and, and, uh, and wear, you know, long dresses, but, uh, or whatever they call those things, robes. But that's cosmetic, right? That's differences of appearance. What about the differences of behavior? What about the differences of belief systems? The fundamental Taliban belief system is power flows from the top down, the f as is the Republican parties. The fundamental Taliban belief system is men should be in charge of everything. How many women are there in the Republican caucus? The fundamental Taliban belief system is people have to look like us. They've got to be from our tribes. They've got to be Pashtuns or they've got to be, you know, what you might call Afghans. We can't have different people here. We can't have different religions here. They put people of different religion, you know, who are not uh, Muslims to death. Well, the Republican Party hasn't quite gone that far. But the idea, hey, people who don't look like us, to hell with them, seems to me pretty much to be the same. Or am I missing something? Have I, have I overlooked some fundamental difference between the Republican Party and the United States? I mean, even right down to their logo, the, the Republican Party has adopted an upside-down five-pointed star as their logo. 
which is the traditional sign for Satan worshiping. I mean, it's like, what am I missing here? Anyhow, we'll pick up your thoughts on all that in just a few minutes. I do want to uh, to also get to uh, masks and school shootings. I think this is a good one. Stick around. We'll be right back. You can be calling your Democratic or Republican representatives to let them know what you think by calling 202-224-3121. It's the Capitol switchboard. It'll get you right through to them. Julie in Port Orger, Washington. Hey, Julie, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to KBCS. Uh, hey, Tom. I want to tell you that you're wrong about the star. If you look at it as it being leaning to the left because the elephant's back is curved, it's normal. It's just been tilted. I don't think it's really upside down. My personal opinion. Well, I, I'm just looking at the GOP logo, and the stars are all upside down. The point, the the point that used to be at the top is at the very bottom, and the two points at the top where the goat's horns are are at the top. The two points on the side where the goat's ears are, are on the side. And if you look up pentagram, that's what it is. A pentagram is an upside down five pointed star, and traditionally, at least in Christianity, that's been a sign of Satan worshiping. Yeah, but as I said, I also look at it as it's just tilted to the left because the elephant's back is curved. Yeah, I don't think so. That's my opinion. <laughs> okay. Now, as for c- comparing the Republican Party and the Taliban, mm-hmm. actually, the first time I heard that was on the HBO Newsroom series uh-huh. where Jeff Daniels' character called them the American Taliban. Oh, yeah, this is and, like three years ago, wasn't it, when that show came out? Oh, I think it's longer than that. Yeah. And yeah. I, when he said that, I was like, yeah, he's right. That's they right, are. he did a whole long rant about that. I completely forgot. Yeah. Brilliant. That's, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah. I, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I wish I had thought of that. I would have found a clip of it and, and played it. Um, but spot on. Julie, thank you very much for that. Scotty in Seattle. Hey, Scotty, what's up? Hi. Yeah, I have a couple of analogies. You can determine if they're relevant. One is when the good old boys, uh, generalizing, come to go door to door looking for what? Vaccinated people to arrest? Uh, who's going to evacuate us? And another one is the movie Cowboys. Mm-hmm. You know, the movie Tombstone with mm-hmm. Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp, and he's got a war against the cowboys and the end of the movie the last cowboy demonstrably drops his red sash what's it going to take for the good old boys to drop their orange bandanas i i I, i'm missing something here scotty what what's the point the point is is that the cowboys in the old west the terrorist organization and just criminals they wore red bandanas now the proud boys are wearing orange bandanas Well, Well, the Cowboys were wearing bandanas in order to avoid breathing dust. You know, the the people these days who are wearing bandanas are doing it to avoid being photographed. (laughs) There's a bit of a difference. Okay. Well, maybe not that one. Anyways, I'm with you. You know, we need to start recognizing this thing and start uh, paying attention. We have a Taliban movement in the United States. It's just not called Taliban. It's, it's called the GOP and it's uh, or the right yeah. wing. or so, All know. the good old boys are in that group. There you go. There you go. Scotty, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Just stick around. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. 
Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump by Spencer Ackerman. This is from the introduction titled Neither Peace Nor Victory. In November 2020, as he deceitfully insisted he had won re-election, Donald Trump gestured at ending the Afghanistan war. After purging its, his Pentagon of its leadership, he installed as acting defense secretary a thematically apt choice. The new acting secretary was a longtime counterterrorism figure named Chris Miller. A Green Beret colonel before he entered the vast security bureaucracy, Miller personally gave as much to the war on terror as anyone has. He was among the advanced deployment of special operators who arrived in Afghanistan ahead of the October 2001 invasion. His official biography describes numerous follow-on deployments to both Afghanistan and Iraq. The precise details are classified. Miller's last-minute elevation to the penultimate position in the chain of command had bypassed the Senate-confirmed Deputy Defense Secretary and therefore was legally questionable. Speaking in the Pentagon briefing room for the first time, Miller hailed Trump for having arrived at a, quote, successful and responsible conclusion to the United States' longest foreign war. He hailed the sacrifices of American troops and left after eight minutes without taking any questions. Trump's primary preoccupation at that moment was not Afghanistan, but stealing the presidency. He pursued his task characteristically through cultivating a mass hysteria and daring the, the politicians he had bent to his will to challenge him and his movement. No national Republican politician of any stature was willing to tell him to stop his flagrant assault on constitutional governance. So it stood in glaring contrast that several of them, including Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell, demanded that Trump not go through with the withdrawal. Their Democratic opposition twisted itself in knots to say that while, of course, they supported a responsible end of the war, Trump was engaged in what Senator Tammy Duckworth, an Army veteran who had lost her legs in the Iraq war, called a reckless, chaotic drawdown. Amid a war that had lasted an entire generation, everybody played what were by now grimly familiar political roles. Reluctance to end the constellation of post-9-11 military conflicts was bipartisan, broad, and instinctive in Washington, D.C. Trump, however obstreperous he was about it, proved no exception. Despite Miller's grandiose rhetoric, the president was not ending the war in Afghanistan at all, but merely cutting the U.S. troop commitment there from 5,000 to 3,500, 2,500 announced, and another 1,000 added through deceptive and by now typical Pentagon accounting, by the time Joe Biden took office. Trump was even undercutting what had been the most valorous act of his disgraceful presidency, an accord with the Taliban that nominally tethered U.S. withdrawal to reciprocal Taliban measures and an inter-Afghan peace process. In Iraq, Trump was removing even fewer forces. Syria went unmentioned. Trump would be the third president to hand the forever war, a term that was first derisive but grew more accepted as the point became harder to contest, to his successor. Throughout his presidency, Trump was often misperceived as being an opponent of the war on terror. He owed that reputation to his vocal derision of, quote, stupid Mideast wars. Yet in office, he escalated the war dramatically, intensifying aerial bombing campaigns across multiple war zones, particularly in Somalia, where the war had never been fought as intensely as under Trump. One study in December 2020 found that Trump's accelerated bombing 
had increased civilian casualties in Afghanistan by 350%. Military commanders faced fewer operational restrictions and transparency obligations. In 2019, the president deployed an additional 14,000 U.S. troops to the Middle East as part of a pressure campaign against Iran. The war on terror's white whale, which culminated in the assassination of its senior external security official. Every time Trump proposed withdrawal, even once declaring the still ongoing war over, he ultimately acquiesced to the objections of the military leadership. Before sensibly suing for peace with the Taliban, he even doubled troop levels in Afghanistan, the forever war theater that he claimed to hate the most. It was hardly the first time in Trump's career that he convinced people that the truth was the opposite of what the evidence told them. But Trump's durable anti-war persona derived from nothing that he did and only what he said. For many, the propaganda of Donald the Dove, as the New York Times Marine Dowd infamously described him, was convenient. Trump's justifiers, determined to dominate the broad institutional machinery of the state, needed to portray it as bloodthirsty and inept. Their opponents did the rest of the work. Liberals, who tended to identify with that machinery, wanted to view Trump as a deviation from American history, a man in political and perhaps even financial debt to foreign adversaries, someone incapable of acting in the national interest. They used Trump's rejections of the Council of Generals and spymasters to demonstrate their point. Rarely did they pause to consider the merits of continuing wars that they had long ago stopped believing in. Trump understood something about the war and terror that they did not. He recognized that the 9-11 era's grotesque subtext, the perception of non-whites as marauders from, of hostile foreign civilizations, was its engine. The book Reign of Terror by Spencer Ackerman, subtitled How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. On the line with us is Jake Johnston. Jake is the Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, one of the better progressive uh, economic think tanks out there that we've worked with for years. CEPR.net is the website. Jake's Twitter handle is Jacob, J-A-K-O-B Johnston, or at CEPRDC, or Haiti Aid Watch. Jake, tell us what we know about what's going on. You've focused on Latin America for years. What's the latest on Haiti? Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, there's uh, almost too many places to know where to begin with what's going on in Haiti, right? I mean, obviously, about six weeks ago, the president, Joe Luis, was assassinated, uh, triggering a large sort of political and governance crisis, uh, which, in fact, sort of predated the assassination in so many ways. And then the 7.2 earthquake that struck the southern portion of Haiti, causing widespread devastation, and followed very quickly by Tropical Storm Grace, which dug floodwaters all over the south as well. So it's an extremely difficult situation on the ground right now. Yeah. What is being done? I understand the U.S. military is bringing planes in there right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's most important to remember, I mean, it is Haitians who are the natural first responders, and it is Haitians who are helping neighbors, communities, families, and have been mobilizing nonstop since the disaster, right? Uh, and it is really, you know, I think from, from everything I'm hearing, local organizations that are really sort of taking the lead in this response on the ground in the South. So your blog, Haiti Relief and Reconstruction Watch, you're talking about, well, there's just a whole, whole pile of stuff here over at CEPR. We're talking with Jake Johnston. What can individual Americans do who want to help out? Are there pressure points? Are there good organizations? Are there, are there things that we should be doing or you know, ways that we can increase aid to Haiti? And, and going forward, what sort of reforms? You know, I mean, Haiti is in a political crisis right now. We had, after the assassination of the, uh, or of the former president, we had a former, former president on this program a few weeks ago. In fact, we reached out to him to talk to him today. He was unavailable. But what, you know, what needs to be done there as well as here? And how can we all participate in this? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've, we've learned a lot of lessons from the 2010 earthquake and the response to that, which, you know, in so many ways was a real disaster in its own right. right? And one of the main lessons was rather than supporting these big foreign NGOs to come in and try and sort of impose solutions from abroad to support local organizations, right? And so, you know, if, if there are... People watching, 
exactly inside Haiti. And so if there are folks watching the show looking to get involved with donate, I think the most important thing is, is to do some homework, right, and to, to find local organizations that are actually there on the ground in these affected communities. These are the people who, who know what, what these communities need and, and know how to actually implement effective programs. And what we saw, again, after 2010 was billions of dollars in aid almost all of which entirely bypassed local organizations, the Haitian government, the private sector in Haiti. And this had a really nefarious long-term impact on, on the development in Haiti. So, I mean, you, you, you don't want to just, like, do a Google search. I mean, you, you might end up with some scam organization. How, how do you know who to send aid to or who to support if you're trying to support local Haitian charities? Are there any particular ones that you want to mention here? Yeah, so there is a, an organization, Haiti Response Coalition, that has put together a list of local organizations, trusted organizations, you know, again, but I think, you know, there are, you know, lots of ways to try and find these organizations. I mean, certainly, again, doing one's homework and finding credible organizations, and it is possible, but again, I urge folks to look at the list put out by the Haiti Response Coalition, and just have a number of organizations there that, that are certainly on the ground and, and leading the response right now. Is there a specific website for the Haiti Response Tell me that name again. Haiti Response Coalition. Coalition. Yeah. I, yep. Okay. Oh, here it is. It's HaitiResponse.org is the website for them. I'm looking at that website right now. They also have a Facebook page. And they say the Haiti Response Coalition is a cross-sector platform for sharing information and organizing collaborative action for a stronger Haiti. Members of the coalition actively seek to expand their knowledge, cooperation, and collective action using a human rights-based approach. They go through values and coalition members and things. Oh, they're doing a lot of stuff. They're doing COVID. They're doing response. Good start. Okay. And I think, you know, going back to, to your question, too, and, and connecting this to the political situation, because I think that's such a critical issue here. Right? We, we so often try and think of uh, humanitarian issues and politics as being sort of two separate siloed things, right, and not connected. And yet they're so deeply connected, right? And oftentimes if an aid project goes wrong or after the 2010 earthquake to try and sort of explain away some of the failures, everything's blamed on a political instability, right? And I think we have to take a step back and look at some of the root causes of that political instability and understand that it's actually been these foreign interventions, both after natural disasters, but also more overt political interventions, overturning electoral results, supporting coup d'etats, et cetera, that have really undermined the government, contributed to the political instability, and which generate the, the difficulty that we see uh, you know, manifesting itself today in the response to, to the earthquakes, to the tropical storms, et cetera. Yeah, well, there's two things right off the top of my head. One, that Haiti had to pay reparations to France forever, basically, for, you know, for having declared their own independence. And uh, you, you may know off the top of your head how many years it was. It seems like it was over 50. And, and then secondly, the United States supported uh, Papa Doc Duvalier and, the, and Baby Doc Duvalier, which were just, you know, uh, rapist administrations. I mean, they, they just pillaged that country. And I have, you know, I, I was not all that politically aware back in those days, or at least with regard to international affairs beyond the Vietnam War. I don't know how we did that, why we supported them, why, why we went along with that as long as we did. Do you have any insights into that? Ways that, uh, you know, lessons yeah, well, America should learn from our involvement in this? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think, you know, the lessons here in terms of, you know, aid and politics, I think is the same in both cases, right? Which is not imposing solutions from abroad or thinking that we know what is best for Haiti, right? But listening to voices in Haiti and trying to support those efforts and standing in solidarity with the people of Haiti, as opposed to, again, intervening in the affairs of Haiti, right? And that's a very different dynamic. And I, you know, I think you raised such an important point about this history, right? You know, many uh, people abroad, the only thing they know about Haiti may be that it's, you know, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, which seems like the sort of trademark thing that has to be in every news article. And I think the point you make right uh, around these reparations around Haiti being, you know, born out of a successful revolt of the enslaved population, right? And that was in 1804. And, and this is a country that stood as an example to the world and that has been made to pay for that example for centuries. I think that has so much to do with not only the, the view of Haiti as this sort of inherently unstable place, but also, again, going back to the root causes of so many of the things that we see manifested today. What was the rationale that the U.S. government used for supporting the Duvalier regimes? You know, it was largely under the banner of anti-communism, right? Um, mm. You know, the, 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 a nation. Right our guys against Castro. 
That's exactly right. And I think, you know, in so many ways, the world has obviously changed, and yet it's obviously stayed the same in too many ways as well, right? And so, again, you see so often uh, the interest of particular countries such as the U.S. being at the center of our interventions and foreign assistance in Haiti, right, rather than the needs and desires of the Haitian people and the Haitian community, right? And so, again, switching this notion of uh, trying to impose solutions versus listening to folks on the ground and standing right. in solidarity. Which I think is, is, in a way, uh, even kind of a racist thing, this whole white savior complex and, you know, we're going to, we're, we know what's best and all that kind of stuff. It's... Uh, Exactly. Yeah. Jake Johnston with uh, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, CEPR.net. Thanks, Jake. Thanks. Tom. And welcome back. Pick up your phone calls in just a half a second. I just wanted to, to flag uh, 16 names for you. Uh, 16 Republicans who voted against helping get our allies out of Afghanistan. Honest to God, these Republicans are, are bloviating and hysterical that, that uh, Joe Biden didn't get them out fast enough after Donald Trump sabotaged the whole program two years ago, him and Stephen Miller. Oh, my God, brown people coming into the United States. They just basically, for all practical purposes, shut down the special visa, the SIV uh, visa program for Afghan interpreters and people who had worked with us. They just slowed it down to a snail's pace. They, they processed 4,000 people last year. Well, so far, Joe Biden's gotten 30,000 people out of Afghanistan. Pretty much any American who wants to get out is out. But it wasn't for lack of trying, and it took some money from Congress to make this happen. This was a piece of legislation. It was called the Averting Loss of Life and Injury by Expediting SIVs Act, or in other words, the Allies Act, A-L-L-I-E-S, Allies Act. It passed the House of Representatives 407 to 16. So who were these 16 people who said, no, 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 screw the guys who fought with us. To hell with the people who worked with our troops. We don't give a rat's ass about them. They've got brown skin. Haven't you noticed? Well, we start out with, you know, one of the more famous uh, racists in Congress, Andy Biggs. He, he, <laughs> he made his money the old-fashioned way. He won it from Publishers Clearinghouse. Honest to God, this is... <laughs> uh, next up, uh, Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado, whose husband took almost a million dollars as a consultant from the fossil fuel industry while she was on the fossil fuel, you know, on the, on the uh, committee in Congress that oversees the fossil fuel industry passing legislation to help that industry. Uh, <laughs> Lauren Boebert. Then you got Mo Brooks, the guy who wore body armor to the January 6th rally and and preceded Trump saying it's time to take names and kick ass, right? Then you, Scott, you, you have Scott DeJarlais, the Episcopalian Republican from Tennessee, who's been able to hold on to his job even though he had to admit to numerous affairs with patients when he was a physician. Seriously. Next up, South Carolina Representative Jeff Duncan. He was uh, one of the leaders of the uh, Obama birther conspiracy. Then you got uh, Bob Good, a Re Virginia Republican, who is just a good old fashioned old time homophobe. You got Paul Gosar of Arizona, Arizona the uh, dentist whose entire family has disowned him for being nuts. You got Marjorie Taylor Greene. Need I say anything more? You've got Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma. He's got a corruption bag filled with PPP loans. Yes! Making money off the federal government. Then you've got uh, Representative Jody Heiss of Georgia. He's been trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Tom Massey of Kentucky. Question, could anybody be worse than Mitch McConnell and Rand Paul? Well, how about Thomas Massey? He's blocking, he's been working with McConnell to block disaster relief from getting to Americans in need. Then you've got Representative Barry Moore. He was arrested on felony perjury charges. You've got uh, Republican Representative Scott Perry, who's, uh, you know, an open anti-immigration racist. And uh, Representative Bill Posey of Florida, right up there with Matt Gates. 
real estate guy, Matthew Rosendale of Montana, a self-described uh, rancher who actually uh, is a carpetbagger from the East Coast. And finally, Chip Roy from Texas. So if any of those folks represent you, you may want to ask them, you know, why are you so opposed to our getting the people who are on our side out of, out of uh, Afghanistan? Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? You know, Tom, I, I wanted to say something controversial based on the fact that you're comparing the Republican Party to the Taliban, which they are. But like the Taliban, they are the minority party, and they are having tremendous success at staunching the uh, progress of uh, those of us in the majority. And just like the Taliban has done in Afghanistan, they are for sure the minority. But it seems like this approach, this political approach that the Republicans and the Taliban are taking is successful in killing the progress of free democracy. And that's why I think that this constitutional democracy is counterproductive in the sense that we have to stop, and I've made this point before, but I, I'm reframing it. We have to stop taking an egalitarian approach at the federal level. Yes, the, government, the federal government should be picking winners and losers in the sense that the states that are successful should be the winners. And I mean the states are successful at taking an egalitarian approach in their states. I'm going for the states' rights thing because without the successful blue states in this country, their country would fall apart. Yeah, so and are, so are you have, going down the road that I've gone down of saying that we need to have a uh, end welfare in America as we know it bill that says that no state can get more than $1.30 for every dollar they send to Washington, D.C., which would be a big problem for states like Kentucky that are getting over $2 for every dollar they send? Dollar thirty. That's thirty percent over. That sounds like a lot to me. Well, make it a buck. Uh, then. Let me. Yeah. Well, it's. Oh, uh, yeah. Let's make it no more than ten percent over. Uh, but look at it this way. Do you remember? And and we sometimes talk about there was a Supreme Court case in which Louis Brandeis, Justice Louis Brandeis, said, "Let the let the states be the the laboratories of democracy." Right. Yes, but also let that be the test. We cannot let the federal government nullify the competition of those laboratories, of which states are the successful states. Right. When a, when a lab experiment fails, you pour it down the drain. <laughs> I mean, that's right. And that's right. And you don't let the other successful laboratory experiments say, oh, well, since yours failed, we'll give you ours. Yeah. No. Yeah. So this is what we have. To, and that's why I say the egalitarian pro approach at the federal level means that, you see, the states have, it's like what I've said before, when we, when we have all these federal programs that help people in these red states, they'll take the money and turn around and bite your hand and call you a socialist. Yeah. And, and so that's why we have this problem with a significant minority killing the progress of the majority. And we see people in Mississippi eating ivermectin horse paste for, wor for worms for COVID. And I'm like, you know, 70% of the poison calls, the control calls in Mississippi in the last two weeks have been from taking horse warming. Yeah, this is after five episodes on Fox News in prime time promoting ivermectin, which, by the way, yep. will kill you if you take, you know, horse-sized doses and will not cure no COVID kidding. no matter what you take. Because right. the one study that seemed to suggest that it might cure COVID was never peer-reviewed. And when it was published in advance of peer review... Uh, the, organ the publication that published it pulled it because it turned out that, A, the data was just literally made up. It was completely phony. And, B, the language around the data was plagiarized from another study. It was a complete con job just to sucker in the QAnon people and the Republicans reading Facebook. And that laboratory experiment should fail and not be recompensated by those of us pursuing successful uh, measures and avenues towards success. Amen. I'm Amen. sorry. Yeah, they no, should I'm, fail. They I, should I'm, fail I'm, and pay for it. I'm with you. Paul, I'm going to move along, but I'm completely with you. Thank you. Luigi in Pensacola. Hey, uh, Florida. Hey, Luigi, what's up? Hey. hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. Earlier this morning, I read your rant on, 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 uh, the, uh, online, and I heard you just a few moments ago. There's one group, though, I would like to see if you would include and make a comment on it, and that's the labor unions. 
I keep, and I'm 56 year member. I'm retired. I still pay my dues proudly. And I'm thinking, I try to tell my sisters and brothers to please understand if these people have been trying to destroy organized labor in this country for years. They hate organized labor. Oh, and so does the Taliban. Yes. The Taliban will not tolerate workers, guilds, or unions. How dare you challenge our power? Yes, sir. So I would like our brothers and sisters, and I put emails out. I sent. I keep up. I'm very active still in in the machinist union movement in the state of Florida. And I tell them, you need to step up and stop listening to this nonsense. And thank you, Tom, for everything you're doing. I really appreciate it. You keep me well informed, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Luigi. Thank you. Yeah, we uh, and I appreciate your kind words. We put a lot of work into this program. I'm glad that it's it's appreciated. Luigi, thank you. Yeah. Labor unions, another area where the Republican Party and the Taliban are on the same page. What a shock. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'm waiting for somebody to say, Hartman, you're over the top. You went too far this time. Are you kidding? We'll see. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, one other thing here. This, this, you know, I saw a political cartoon about this over the weekend, and I thought, bingo, you know, this is, this is like, how did I miss this? How, how have we as a society missed this? After all these children were killed at Sandy Hook, and school shooting after school shooting after school shooting. Amy Vanderpool has a, a newsletter she calls Shiro over at Substack.com. And every Saturday, I believe it is, maybe it's Sunday, I'm pretty sure it's Saturday, every weekend, she publishes a, uh, a, you know, a quick news summary of everything that has happened in the news. And at the top of her news summary are a list of all the uh, mass shootings in the United States in the previous week. And she was documenting in, in this week's newsletter, she was documenting uh, virtually every day for the last week, there were multiple mass shootings in the United States. And so, you know, we have these mass shootings. And what is our response to that? We ask our children to wear bulletproof backpacks. No, I'm not making this up. You can buy them now in, in school supply stores, in toy stores and clothing stores and office supply stores backpacks that have a little metal plate in them or a little ceramic plate in them so if your kid gets shot in the back the bullet will embed itself in the book pack rather than in their body this is our solution we give our children something to wear to protect themselves from flying bullets but we also have something flying around in our schools it's just as dangerous it's it's actually killing more probably by the end of this year it will have killed more children than guns since the delta variant which just really started in a big way about two months ago is killing kids in america and that's the delta variant of the coronavirus 
and we say, hey, you know, it's a lot less heavy than a book pack with a ceramic or a metal plate in it. Try this mask. And now we've got people all over the country going, oh, that's tyranny. You can't do that. That's 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 terrible for our child. Oh, my God, we can't have them. You're forcing them to wear something. I mean, why does this not seem so absurd that it's like in the news? Why isn't the rest of America going, huh? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich by by me. <laughs> I wrote this book. This is from the introduction, the title, How a Single-Payer Healthcare Systems Helps Stop COVID-19. Healthcare systems can be national security systems. Just ask anyone from Taiwan. On January 20, 2020, the United States recorded its first known case of COVID-19 infection. The following day, Taiwan got their first one too. By the end of April, over a million Americans were infected with the virus. But Taiwan had recorded only 388 infections and their last case of lo local transmission was on April 12th. A few had arrived on aircraft from other countries. All were contained by quarantine. As of this writing in September 2020, there hadn't been a single new case or a single death in Taiwan since April. The economy never shut down and, as of this writing, was projected to have grown nearly 2% in 2020. Business, restaurants, theaters, and sports events were all open. Life was back to normal, albeit a mask-wearing normal. And it was made possible by their national single-payer health care system and their citizens' willingness to do their bit for the collective good. Back in the 1980s, Taiwan was on the edge of moving toward a democracy after a military coup in the 1960s. And about 40% of Taiwanese families did not have health insurance. If somebody in a family got sick, the cost of care often wiped out that family, and demands for reform were loud across the nation. Yue Reinhardt was a German-born healthcare economist married to a Taiwanese woman, and he attended a conference on healthcare in Taipei in 1989. His presentation impressed representatives of the government in attendance, and while he was still in town for the conference, they asked him for his best suggestion for a national health care system. He and his wife went back to their hotel and discussed the issue in depth, finally deciding that a single-payer national system would be the most cost-effective, efficient, and comprehensive program possible. He shared his thoughts with the government representatives, and the next day he left Taiwan to go back to Princeton, where he was an e economic professor. Six months later, though, a representative of Taiwan's government called him to say that they were going to take up his suggestion and asked him to help craft their health care program. He enthusiastically agreed, and by 1995, Taiwan had instituted one of the world's best single-payer health care systems. Today, everybody in Taiwan is fully covered for doctor and hospital services. Everybody has a driver's license-like health care card, which accesses their entire medical history. They can book a doctor's appointment on any computer terminal in the country. And the entire cost of the system is a bit more than 6% of Taiwan's GDP. For comparison, in the United States, healthcare consumes 24% of our GDP. Because there is no insurance company intermediaries sucking profits off the system in Taiwan. When COVID-19 hit, Taiwan chose not to use the blunt force technique of shutting down their economy and locking people in. Instead, they took on the coronavirus with an aggressive nationwide test and contact trace program tied into the National Health Service database. Every infected person was identified and put into a comfortable quarantine, and every person he or she had come into contact with, even very marginal contacts, were also tested and their contacts traced. By April, just a bit more than two months after the first case surfaced, the country had the coronavirus isolated and completely under control. By quarantining inbound visitors to the nation island of 23 million, they were able, as of this writing, to keep it that way. Maintaining public health is one of the most important functions of any nation's healthcare system. Because America's is so fragmented, it's inconceivable that our nation could respond to an epidemic, a pandemic, or another public health disaster with the speed and elegance of Taiwan or any of the world's other nations with single-payer Medicare for all types of systems. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, a friend who's a psychotherapist said, describing the way that Americans have clung for more than five generations to a for-profit health insurance system, while the rest of the world figured out how to provide health care to all their citizens at a much lower price. People know it and have become familiar with it, she added. They just can't imagine anything else. 
It's probably the largest con job ever perpetrated on the American people. One that has cost trillions of dollars and millions of lives. It's been going on since the 1940s. If it were a scientific experiment, it would have been shut down by the ethics review panels generations ago. This experiment in providing health care via a for-profit insurance system has led to the deaths of more Americans than we lost in World War II. Every year, over a half million Americans go bankrupt, often losing everything they've worked their entire lives for because somebody in their family got sick. That's a half million families a year, every year, for the past few decades. And the coronavirus, of course, has only made things worse. Perhaps most galling, this massive ripoff is costing our entire nation, and each of us individually, a fortune. Insurance premiums right now make up 22% of all taxable payroll, well above what the cost of Medicare for all would be at around 14% when first put into place, dropping to down to around 10% within a few years as previously uninsured people get their health needs up to date. As the health insurance drug and hospital parasites push their suckers deeper and deeper into our body politic, spending on health care by Americans went up 20%, 25% between 2000 and 2014. The book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare by Tom Harper. And uh, welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Vi in Oxley, Missouri. Hey, Vi, what's up? Um, I have two family members taking uh, that horse warmer for COVID. They've been take, they're taking it for a week at a time. You're kidding. And then they say they're going to start taking it only once a month, I guess, for the remainder of the pandemic. It's pretty frightening. And they're educated. Both have master's degrees. You know, they're not wow. dumb people. Wow. It's, yeah, it's this... very frightening. This is, you know, there there has been a concerted propaganda effort, and I'm guessing that a good chunk of this is not coming from within the United States, to try to uh, sicken or poison Americans and and discourage Americans from getting the vaccine. You know, originally this was Republicans trying to discourage Americans from getting vaccinated or wearing masks in order to create chaos, economic and political chaos, to hurt the Biden administration, which is, by the way, working. They're, they are harming Biden to a certain extent, um, although it is killing more people in red counties and red states than anywhere else. Here, here in Oregon, it's just mind-boggling. I mean, we're all, we were almost 3,000 you know, new cases uh, last Friday, and uh, it's, it's almost all half counties, and it is pretty much all happening among unvaccinated people. And you've got docs and nurses around this country who are just starting to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know, we're not going to put up with it anymore. It's amazing. But, yeah, thank you, uh, Vi, for the call. I appreciate it. Robert in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Robert, what's up? Hello, Tom. You, I think you are right when you compare the Taliban and the Republican Party. And the thing of it is like this. Like, you know how you were talking about how, like, the Taliban would use religion to try to tell everyone, like, what to do or what not to do? And the Republicans would look at that and they would complain that something needs to be done, how they how dare they oppress people. But then, like, say, for instance, they use their holy book to not like gay people. And then the it's pointed out to them. They say, well, we have to dislike gay people. It says in our Bible that gayness is an abomination but like they won't do the same thing for the taliban and yeah and it's the I same old testament that is. by the way i mean you know all three christianity judaism and islam all use the same old testament the the the, the new testament is you know fundamental to christianity it's acknowledged by islam and then of course you've got the quran and islam but uh you know it, basically that and the republican party they're all saying to hell with science, to hell with modernity, we are gonna go with a Bronze Age religion and the values and norms of that Bronze Age religion, uh, specifically and particularly patriarchy and absolutely straight sexuality and everything else we're gonna condemn and even put to death. Robert, thank you, well said. Maureen in Geneva, Illinois. Hey, Maureen, what's up? I'd just like to ask if you can explain exactly what happened last year, the end of November, I guess, when Donald Trump invited members of the Taliban to Camp David and then proceeded to tell the American public that we were giving up and leaving and the Taliban would be taking over. When did that happen, and uh, did he have the right to make such a, a decision when he had lost the election? 
I, maybe I have my timeline wrong here. Yeah. But Part of this negotiation started before the elections, and over the loud objections of the Ashraf Ghani, you know, the, the, the elected president of Afghanistan, over his administration, Donald Trump cut the Afghan government out of the negotiations. He had previously ordered the release of Mullah Baradar, I think is his name, the head of the Taliban, so that he could specifically negotiate with him. Mike Pompeo went over and kissed the guy's feet, bowed down to him, shook his hand, took pictures with him, you know, all this other kind of stuff. I was appalled when I saw that picture. Oh, yeah. In uh, Camp David. Oh, yeah. my. Oh, yeah. And, well, they never came to Camp David because there was such an uproar. Oh. I mean, an international oh. uproar, not, not just in the United States. But this is how stupid this idea was that Trump was promoting. Like, But, you know, Trump is an autocrat. Trump, I mean, you know, the first country that Trump visited, you know, traditionally it's Canada or Mexico, you know, one of our allies or, or the United Kingdom, one of our traditional democratic allies. The first country that Trump visits, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where women have absolutely no rights and, and a small group of men run the country and they run it with an iron fist. And if you get out of the line, they will kill you. And in fact, they have public executions every Friday. That's and it where, sounds like he's fulfilling all the wishes of Putin in bringing down the United States of America. Oh, I uh, he has no doubt about that. Not just Putin. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia doesn't like our democracy. It makes it uncomfortable for them. The UAE doesn't like our democracy. It makes it uncomfortable for them. There's a bunch of countries. Saudi know. Arabia, nothing but butchers. Yeah. Uh, and they can get away with murder. Yeah. And so, so what Trump did is he sold out the, the Afghan government that we spent 20 years and, and uh, 20,000 casualties propping up, not to mention, you know, as many as a million dead Afghans. You know, he sold them out completely, gave the whole thing away, didn't get anything in exchange for it. And now he's sitting around complaining that Joe Biden only got 30,000 people out without a single casualty. You know, I got an email from Donald Trump this morning saying, oh, Joe Biden is incompetent. He needs to resign immediately. Really? Did Biden really? consent to that? Say that again. Did Biden go along with the idea? He had uh, no choice. He wasn't president. He was already taken care of. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Maureen, thank you for the call. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.